The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week, the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. This woman grew up in a poor family and went on to become a school teacher. She married a man who became an attorney and her life seemed set. But at age 45, she met a retired French pastry chef who taught her the fine art of baking. She learned from him on the weekends and practiced what she learned during the weekdays. She began selling her cakes in local restaurants and found that she made more money doing this than teaching. And then her big break came. She got asked to make the wedding cake for a well-known wealthy family, and a 40-year journey of baking masterpieces began. She found herself engulfed in a world of dignitaries, wealth, and fame. Her cakes became known as the most beautiful, the most delicious, and the most expensive. From Paris to Dubai to the U.S., the legacy of and the desire for Sylvia cake continues. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Sylvia Weinstock. Hi, Sylvia. Thank you for joining me today. It is my pleasure and my honor, and I certainly love that introduction. <laughs> well, you're well, you. you're well deserved for it, and we have such a little time together today and so much to talk about, so I'm going to jump right on in. So through much of your professional baking career, all chefs were men and the kitchens were run by men. So Sylvia, how did you manage to succeed in this demanding environment? Well, there are a couple of ways to do that. Number one, age helped me. I was not a 20-year-old kid. I was close to 50 years old at that time. That's number one. Number two, I came in humble. I felt I was invading their space, and they were very appreciative of that. I didn't have a chip on my shoulder, and they looked at me as maybe mama. And a lot of French chefs love their mothers. That's how they started out. So I think... That was the beginning of being welcomed into an all-male kitchen. Interesting. And did it take long for you to gain their respect? I think the moment they saw the product, I got their respect. I remember doing a cake in France in a French kitchen, all men, and they just looked askance at me as, what is this American older woman doing in our kitchen? And she thinks she can do something better than we do? Well, when we were finished doing it, they were so in awe that they brought out a bottle of champagne and toasted me. And I was really very humble about that and thanked them so much for allowing me into their space. Oh, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And what about the cake impressed them? Was it your technique? Was it the final product? What was it? Well, everything about the cake was very unusual at that time in place. Number one, we used the most expensive at butter, the best chocolate, fresh fruit, heavy cream, and that the look was extraordinary. And everything was coated in buttercream, not a fondant and not an icing that you had a break, like the British had a royal icing. But it could sit out for years, as a matter of fact, but not my cake. It had to be eaten within 24 hours. So that if you had heavy cream in it and fresh fruit, you didn't want anything to happen to it. But people never got a wedding cake like that before. Most wedding cakes were very dry and they were very simple looking and very traditional looking. And here comes this multi-tiered 
beautiful cake that smells with vanilla and and fresh fruit. And it's beautiful and it's on display. And when they cut into it, they can't believe how delicious it is. My mouth's watering just you talking about it, Sylvia. <laughs> well, I think if, if I'm going to eat it, it has to be the best. And I'm sharing what I eat with you. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm going to stay in this space just for a second longer because there's something I'm curious about. So the designs that I've seen you do, and certainly you were doing at that time that was so impressive, were very artistic. But yet you didn't have an artistic background in terms you weren't teaching art as a school teacher, were you? No, I wasn't. I was a gardener. Uh I had reasonable good taste. I loved flowers. And so the beginning for me was to make sugar flowers. And as soon as I could get that technique down and I was happy with it, I started to find employees to work with me. And I did. I found a number of women who had very good hands and they were able, they had patience and they could sit there and make flowers. And each one of my employees had a flower that they loved and that was their flower. So I had somebody making roses, somebody making tulips somebody making lilies, somebody making orchids, because they fell in love with that particular flower. I worked for manuals. I brought in real flowers. I showed them what it looked like. We took them apart, tried to duplicate the petals. And that's the beginning of a business. Oh, I love it. So you became very good at what you did, did you not? I had a good eye for that. And I wanted a garden growing on a cake. And that was the beginning. And then as we progressed, there were other things. The same customer would say, my little boy is having a birthday party. Can you make a little train for me? Could you make a bus? Could you make uh, the enchanted forest? Could you do uh, a man's birthday became a boat on the ocean with him standing on it? And then it took it to another level. And I didn't have all those skills. But I went to the local art schools like Pratt, which is here in New York. And I hired young people, sculptors, who could do what I would direct and tell them what I needed, but they could execute it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that's how I ended up with a payroll of 17 employees. All working on cakes. All working on the artwork, the cake, the infrastructure. Don't forget, a multi-tiered cake has to be able to be stable. So it had internal structure, which is my husband's brilliance. And he was the one that knew that you needed a center pole and you needed horizontal supports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How tall is the tallest cake you made, Sylvia? You know, it's very hard for me to tell you that because if I look at it and I say maybe I'm five feet, so maybe the cake is 15 on a table, it's another three. So you're talking about 18 feet. You know, it's tall. It's very, very, very tall. tall. <laughs> but, it, but, it has, but it also has to be wide. Otherwise, it looks just like a, a bullet. You don't want it to look like that. You want it to have a sense of balance. So you spread out the base. So it looks like it's just rising up from a field of flowers. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, you mentioned your husband, which moves me into the next question. You were married for 70 years and believe finding the right partner is so important to a woman's success. So what advice would you give to powerful women as they look for the right life partner? Well, I think, number one, chemistry is very important. I mean, I saw this 
22-year-old and said, wow. You know, that was the initial attraction. I liked what he looked. Then I found him to be very warm, kind of funny, very supportive. He was pretty sure of himself. He was sort of a cocky kid. The end of the war, he had been a sergeant in the Army in Australia. So he had a, a pretty good sense of self. I did not. But he helped me. And I grew with him. And we were the lovers, friends, fun together, supportive of each other. You know, we never went to sleep on an argument because I would say to him, Benny, just say you're sorry and let's go to sleep. And of course, <laughs> that just that that would break him up. And that was the end of that. It was nothing. <laughs> if it was important to him, I was out to please him. If it was important to me, he was out to please me. And this is what made a very good marriage. Yeah, that's so important. And something that you said that's also that I've not heard put that way, Sylvia, is you're saying that this man needs to have a strong sense of self. And that he is did. that's interesting because I think if a man is going to be with a powerful woman like you or me or other powerful women out there, they do need to have a strong sense of self. If not, they get lost in the relationship. Well, I've seen I've seen that in other couples where the husband is competitive with the wife because his skills may be different or even if he's in business with her, they have to establish territory and rules because otherwise there's an overlap and there's a battle. So there has to be uh, someone you delegate your roles in a business. So his role was one thing. Mine was another. We could collaborate. But he had he knew who he was, and he did not resent my success. He was not jealous of it. He was very supportive. And I've seen the opposite in a lot of other marriages. Yeah, I have too, Sylvia. And, and they don't last when that exists. It's just a total stress point and conflict all the time. This is a thing that women have to face. You want to marry. You want to have children. You want the tradition, and then you want the everything else. And the everything else sometimes implodes a marriage unless you have the right partner. Right, right. Yeah, so wise. So other women and often women try to be part of the boys club, especially as they reach higher levels of leadership. So in your opinion, is this a bad thing, trying to be part of the boys club? And if so, if you think it's bad, what do you suggest we women do instead? I think we women take over the boys club. <laughs> I think we break the barriers. We enter the Harvard Club. We enter the country clubs. We stand up for ourselves because we're equal. We're not just there to cook and bake and raise the children. We have a brain. We get educated. We become doctors. We become lawyers. We become scientists. Why not? Yeah. And how do you think we sell ourselves short when we try to become like the boys? We don't become like the boys. We're better than the boys. You walk in knowing that you know your own stuff. Know that you can compete with them on every and any level. So don't walk in timid. Walk in. Don't be cocksure, but walk in gently. You will prove yourself in time. They will admire you. They will respect you. You don't want to throw it in their face. We have to be a little more clever, a little more devious. And we are doing that. We're doing that very well. Yeah, and that's an interesting viewpoint, really is. So that leads me into the next question, because this was an interesting thing you told me when we talked earlier. So through the years, even though you were a supplier delivering a custom-ordered wedding product, 
you insisted on always entering through the front door as opposed to the back door with the other vendors. So why did this matter so much to you, Sylvia? I think it put a different glow on you. I've gone to country clubs that didn't allow a woman in the front or Jewish people or especially New Yorkers. There was a resentment to that. But they wanted the product. And if you're proud of your product, you can demand the front door. There were clubs that I delivered cakes to and I came in the front door or they wouldn't get the cake. But these clubs for a century had been male bastions and or white Southern bastions. And all the people of color had to go through the back door. I wouldn't do that. I'd go through the front door. And that's how it all emancipation started. All people, regardless of their wrappings. And that's where we are. We're wrapped in a color. You walk in the front door. And did you get pushback? You must have. I never had a problem with that. Really? I never I never had a problem with that. You come from, you're in Virginia. Right. You have one or two clubs that used to be closed for uh, women yep. and closed for blacks yep. and certainly closed for Jews. Well, that's changed because we're a, you want our product, we go through the front door. Yeah, I love that. I love that sense of confidence. And I hope that those listening take that to heart because if you are good at what you do and confident in what you have, you can demand that front door for sure. And I think yes. we're afraid to do that sometimes, Sylvia. I think we are yeah. unsure of ourselves in that regard. But it's also the way we do it. Don't come in aggressive. Don't come in cocky. Come in nice. Say, you know, with an attitude of, I'm here to please you. And I hope you appreciate what I'm doing. And I respect you and I expect you to respect me in turn. So you you don't come in with a chip on your shoulder. I've seen a lot of people do that. And it that turns anybody off. I don't care how liberal and open-minded you are. Yeah, and that's it's attitude. Yeah, and that's an interesting point to bring up, Sylvia, because I think that sometimes women push so hard for what they need and what is right that they forget the human aspect of people's reactions. Well, you know, we have to play a game sometimes too. Men do. We can as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Yeah. The men play games. So the women can too. And right now, if I can just digress a moment, this business of the sexual revolution, I think the women could set the tone. If a man advances on a woman the wrong way, she can certainly put a stop to it. She doesn't have to say it four years later. Right there and then, behave. Yeah, yeah, stop it. <laughs> stop I mean, when it. they were little kids, little kids, you can say, if you don't behave, I'll tell your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that would still work today. What do you think? <laughs> I, th- I think I think that would I think they would be. <laughs> We're all I think even grown up men are afraid of their mothers. What do you think? <laughs> well, uh, you know, mothers can be very proud of their children, and they were very proud of their sons because that, that's the dynamics: daddies and daughters, mothers and sons. But it's changing because now mothers are supporting their daughters in many ways. So if the daughter wants to become a scientist, the family will back her. The times have changed and women have opened the eyes of their competitors, the men. Yeah, and I think that we want to see that continue for sure. 
so in that space, I'm going to lead into this next question. So you told me that it's up to women to help each other have the power they desire. So my question to you is why would women not do this? And how can we do a better job of elevating each other? Well, I think women don't. Some women are, they are very protective of their turf and they don't want competition, male or female. But specifically, they don't really try to help other women because they feel they'll be replaced, especially an older woman on the job. A young one comes in equally capable and certainly will be over a period of time. The older one will resent it. They don't help and they ask for something in return, which is unfortunate. But I think that will change as young women come into the workforce. They will try to band together and they will try to support each other. And I do see groups of women dining together, drinking together, partying together with the absence of males. And they hope that they will support each other. It will happen in time. Yeah, yeah, because we do, certainly don't do as good a job of that as we should. We fall no, into this tearing each other down space, which I see so often, and it's so unattractive. Well, I think women are still looking at, the men are still in power. Look at the CEOs of all the big companies and law firms, et cetera, mostly men. So we've got to get the women in there. These men are fathers. They have daughters, and sometimes they are the ones that are helping their daughters. So gradually, the gate will open. And we have to be ready when that gate opens, don't we? Well, we have to be educated. We have to know our self-worth. We have to know the tools of the trade. We can't be a CEO and not know how to add and subtract. We need educated women. And we need women that just don't stop on a secretarial level or a file clerk level, but they are educated enough or hungry enough to grow. So you mentioned something that I want to step into just for a second, Sylvia, and that's this idea of self-worth. So for you, in, in the company that you started at the age of 50, when you rolled out these cakes to these dignitaries and celebrities and, and wealthy people across the world, your cakes were very expensive. So we're not talking about a two or $300 cake that most Americans would be accustomed to. We're talking tens of thousands to be charged for your cake. How did you get to a place where you were okay charging that? Well, number one, I know I was dealing with wealthy people. I knew what the wedding was costing. I mean, you have a wedding that costs, say, $2 million, $8 million. The dress costs $100,000. I have 17 employees, and it's called a payroll. I got to cover those expenses, and I had to end up with some kind of a profit so that you simply just figured out a martini in Manhattan at that time was like $15, $20 a glass of wine or a drink. Well, my, I think my cake is worth that per person. So that's how we evolved. And then as the decorations went, more I want more on it. I want it taller. I want it grander. I want it bigger. As one bride said to me, I want it bigger than my sister's. Now, that's a competitive attitude. I was very happy to oblige. Not only but you were. Price, but, in, but in price. <laughs> and it turned out just perfect, didn't it? <laughs> it turned out just perfect. You know, I can remember 
One time is when I wasn't true to my instincts and I did a cake that the bride wanted, except I should never have done that. It didn't have a look to it. It did not please the other people that were guests at the event. And I learned a lesson. Everything that walks out of the kitchen has to have my stamp of approval. Hmm. You learned that the hard way, didn't you? Yeah, well, I, I will take I will take into account the bride's wishes to an extent, but you know it's one person out of two hundred. Two hundred walk away saying, "Oh, that wasn't so great," although the bride was happy. But I have to please everybody in that room, so there has to be a compromise, and life is a compromise. Hmm. It certainly is, <laughs> for sure, especially in the business world. So. After all these years of empowerment and women's rights efforts, women are still not equal to men, Sylvia. So what have you seen through your long journey as to why this might be? I think it's an uphill fight. I am the mother of three daughters, so I know what it is for girls. They have to get an education, they have to get skills, and they have to know their self-worth. And that comes from the home initially and from their early experiences. So it's up to parents, male and female parents, to give their kids that strength to go forward into the world and to make a mark and to feel good about themselves. This is an ongoing issue in raising children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what it's, would you it's, it's a family family event? I know. Yeah, yeah. Would you have anything that you want to say to parents out there in terms of how they're raising their children, so that we? get closer to having that equal between men and women? Because you're right, it does start at a very young age. At a very young age. Well, my husband had a local law practice. And I do know that at 5 o'clock, he would come home or 5.30, and we five would sit around with a little drink. My husband and I would have a cocktail. The children would have a little bit of wine in a glass, and we would toast each other for the day. And we would ask each other, what did you do today? Daddy, what did you do today? Ellen, what did you do? How was school? And each person had an opportunity to say something, and we shared it, and we supported each other in the family. If there was a good thing that happened, we were all applauding that. If there was a challenge or a disaster, we all sympathized and worked out, how can we help this child do something better with a kid who knocked them down in school. So, you know, you work together as a unit and they got to understand there was a support. They could always go for help. And that gave them the inner strength and confidence to go out into the world. Mm, Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. I've never heard of a family doing that, of toasting each other at the end of the day uh, and toasting the accomplishments they made that day, whatever they may be. I think that's a beautiful thing. And it does teach your children to celebrate their little successes along the way, doesn't it? And it also teaches them to verbalize. And that's a very important thing. Verbalize the success, verbalize the disappointment, and verbalize the hurts so that you can get, once it's out, you can deal with it. If you internalize all this, you have a problem. And that's what happened to a good many of young women are out in the world in the force, the workforce, because they've internalized a lot of their feelings and they don't know how to deal with it. Yeah. And then they then all kinds of health issues start happening too as well, don't they? This is true. And we have to learn to trust our instincts 
and we have to learn to share uh, our success and disappointments with people because that humanizes us. The moment you become human and share your inadequacies, your fears with somebody else, they open up to that too because everybody has them. Yeah, so, and, we ha- and we hesitate to do it often as women because we feel like it makes us seem weak. No, it's not. It's, that's the strength. The strength is able to verbalize your problems and to deal with them. Once they're out in the open, you can work with them. And that's, and that's strong. I think it's the weak person who internalizes it and suffers from it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's a, certainly a, a different perspective that often we miss, for sure. So, Sylvia, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? Well, I think, number one, life can be absolutely wonderful. You wake up every day and just look for something that will please you, that will make you happy, whether it's a smile from a stranger, the sun, a flower, a phone call, something during the day should please you. And you walk away at the end of the day with a feeling of accomplishment in some way, no matter what it is, even though we've all been stuck at home for almost a year there were things, there were phones that they were communicating with family. There was television you could watch. There were books you could read, newspapers you could cook, you could bake. I mean, you could, you can look for something every day that will give you some satisfaction. And I think that was what did it for me personally. Having been a breast cancer survivor, a lung cancer survivor, a couple of other things as one ages. You know, I go to the, what we call the repair shop periodically. <laughs> the eyes, the teeth, the hair, the nails, everything has to be, you know, you look for something to make each day pleasant. And in these days, it's, it's not easy. I realize that. But there's always something good to look at. If you look at the positive rather than the negative, you'll be a much happier person. Yeah, and I think that is wonderful uh, wisdom to end our interview with together. And Sylvia, I just want to thank you for taking time to share your in-depth wisdom that you have. You have been through an incredible journey all these decades, and I'm so grateful that you were willing to come and share this with my listeners. I want to tell you, I'm not finished. (laughs) You're still going, aren't you, girl? (laughs) I'm, I'm just going to keep going, trucking along until I can't do it. But I think as long as my attitude is there and I'm physically well, I will keep going. And I think you're exactly right. Do you still make cakes? You do, don't you? I I do cakes for myself and for the immediate family. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do something for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to keep my fingers in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Because it's a lot of pleasure for you, for sure. And you're so very good at it. And I like to share it. And you like to share it. So Sylvia is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. Mm 